0: Hey friends, we hope this message from C3 Fort Worth helps you see Jesus like never before. And if you're in or around Fort Worth, we'd love to meet you on a Sunday or at one of our weekly dinner parties. I'm gonna get through all of this today. I'm really fired up to talk about it. I don't know how Donnie so perfectly picks songs to to work with my message uh, but he does. We do not huddle up Wednesday and go, let's trick him and make him think the Holy Spirit's at work. Um, no, we, we, we really, truly, it's, it's wild sometimes. Even the word used in one of the lyrics today fits a verse that's uh, in today. So I just, it's just wild. Uh, we are in a, a bit of a new series, I guess. For me, it's a bit of a foundational kind of vision. In fact, as I was preaching it last week, I realized how crucial this portion of Scripture is to us. Fairly controversial, in uh, in church history, really, because there's been a lot of definitions of denominations via this verse, or at least kind of split-offs, and usually that's what happens. Uh, denominations happen because people couldn't get <laughs> in agreement, and um, and that's okay. It's all right. Like, you know, you can do your house the so way you do your house, but it's all good, um, and so there's been some of that out of Matthew 16, and, and I would love, I would really, really really love, if you didn't, here last week for you to go and listen to it. Check it out on our YouTube. I think it's getting uploaded to our uh, podcast shortly. Um, But Matthew 16, talking through some of these things. And we talked about this idea that when Jesus brings the disciples away to have this uh, discourse with them about his identity, he had taken them to a region that was more like Portland, less like Oklahoma City. In other words, there was this, this pulling away to say, listen, there's all kinds of ideas being thrown at you and I want you to really understand who I am before I go to the cross, before I resurrect, before I head back to my Father. I want you to really know who I am. I don't want to hand this to you and you screw it all up. We still kind of do every once in a while. But regardless, I've got, he's got grace for that, right? But he wants to make sure that these people he's spent a significant amount of time with really understand who he is. And so he asked them this question. Many of you have heard this uh, before, but if you haven't, it's all good. Uh, he, he, he pulls them aside. There's a, a hundreds of gods being worshipped in this area, but there's also a great influence of Caesar in this area. And Caesar was a title, not a name. So it's this idea that Caesar was God or at the very least a representative for him on the earth. Whatever he said, you should listen to, right? And so there's that. Uh, the pan god was, is, was like they had a cave for the pan like, they're, they're, like this is an area where there's all kinds of ideas being floated around all kinds of gods all kinds of ideologies all kinds of uh, worldviews, everything happening and this is where Jesus decides to ask his disciples the question who do people say that I am who do people say that I am and and, and they begin to answer they say things like Elijah that's that's a good one right? it's like uh, who, uh, you know it's like someone saying you're uh, Scotty Pippen instead of saying Michael Jordan. It's still good. Like, Scotty's good. We ain't Michael, right? If some of you said yes, you talk to Jesse later. And, um, but there's this, there's this like, the, Elijah, John the Baptist, uh, Jeremiah. Then they go, they go into, like, and then they just throw this et cetera kind of thing at the end, like and s- some other prophets. In other words, nobody's really certain they all think you're like a forerunner to the Messiah. You're, 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 you're declaring the kingdom of God, and you're saying repent, you're saying all these things. They believe that some way you're preparing people. Some of you think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Ly- all these kinds of things that are happening. And Jesus asking the question, who do they say? I am? And when I think Jesus cares. He, he doesn't care because he's worried about who he is. He's not struggling with his own identity. right? But he is asking so that they would understand who they're speaking to. When they go into the world and the Great Commission to go and disciple all people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when they go to do that, I I want you to understand who you're talking to and what they believe about me. So many times we as Christians and as the church answer questions people aren't asking and avoid the questions that they are. And and I understand some of that, it's difficult sometimes when people drop something on you and they want you to give you a, a they want a yes or a no answer. A right or a wrong answer. I love that the Bible gives me more gray than most people want to admit to. Because I've got to point to Jesus, and then let's build the house together. Let's figure this thing out together. So they ask questions. All right, John the Baptist, Elijah, all this kind of stuff. And they're uncertain. There's not a consensus. There's not a, a definitive decision as to who everybody else says Jesus is. But I still want you to at least ask the question, who do my neighbors say Jesus is? Who do my coworkers say Jesus is? Who do my friends, who does my culture say Jesus is? C.S. Lewis has a great thought on that. I'll let you go search it out. Okay. And then he turns to to his disciples and says, but you, who do you say that I am? Okay, I get that you understand who they say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And and they said, uh, Peter jumps up. And there's no, like, Peter thinks this and nobody else does. Most likely, Peter uh, is just stepping into the the void and, and saying it. We don't know that there's that awkward silence that happens at small groups when you ask a question and nobody wants to be the first to answer. We don't know if that happened. We don't know what went on. But we know that Peter's tended to be a bit ahead of the game. He tended to kind of speak first, listen second. And so Peter jumps up and says, you are the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was prophesied of coming. And the son of the living God. Those are two distinct things. One, uh, one declares his role and his purpose and his mission. And the other declares his divinity and the fullness thereof. That there is this distinction about Jesus. And we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. And so, are you guys good? you with me? All right, all right. And so, uh, so, Jesus hears this. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, oh, how blessed are you. How blessed are you that this revelation happened here and this confession happened here. And those two things have to go together. Right? the revelation must also result in a confession. If we really want to see the healing of God and the wholeness of God and the salvation, remember salvation is also another word for healing. If we really want to see the restoration of God in the earth and in our lives, the, the revelation of who he is has to also result in the confession of who he is. And we need to match those up. Sometimes we have the confession without the revelation. Sometimes we have the revelation without the confession. Right? And I understand, sometimes we struggle with one or the other. And I get it. But when those things can come into alignment, when we can really settle in our hearts who Jesus is. Not all of it, because we will not know the fullness of Christ till we see him face to face. We know that. But the, there's this revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the one who was told would come, and and that he's the Son of the living God. There's this revelation and then this confession. And Jesus says, you're blessed. And you're blessed because you didn't come up with this, and you didn't read a good book about it, and you, but that there's something the Father revealed to you in me that has given you this. And then he says this phrase that has caused some consternation, throughout church history, and he simply says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, we're not going to go into the grammar and the English and the, all the, I'm not a linguistics professor, but, but you can go back and listen to it. But there's a difference between the rock of Peter and the rock of Christ and the use of the word. It sounds the same to us, but it is not the same word. And One is a small rock that's a piece of a bigger rock, and the other one is like a rock, like the rock of Gibraltar type of scenario. So Jesus says, I will build my church upon this rock. What's the rock? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the son of the living God. That's the rock. And, and so he asked this question in a bit of uncertainty. And even the disciples, the disciples didn't know what their future would look like. They didn't know how all these things would play out. They know that they're following this rabbi Jesus and that they're trying to take on the disciplines and the beliefs and the understandings. They're trying to become more and more like the one that they're following, which is always the desire of you and I to the church to become more and more like Jesus as we behold Jesus more and more. So that's the goal here. That's what's happening. And they're trying to figure it out, but they also understand that this confession that he is the Messiah completely contradicts the idea that Caesar was who he said he was, right? And that you are the son of the living God completely contradicts all the pantheon of gods that people were worshiping, all the ideas and the ways in which you sacrifice to this one for that benefit and you sacrifice to this one for that blessing and you serve this one for this idea. That It it completely contradicts those things. So in their confession is a rebellion against the ideals of the world. And I don't know if we understand this, but the confession of Christ is to be one that is a counter-narrative to the narratives we are being fed. And what happens when we conflate those things, sometimes the issue is not that we've let go of Jesus, but that we have conflated Jesus with other ideals and other ideologies and other uh, certain worldviews and pushed them together. In fact, there's one translation of... of, um, Of the greatest commandment, and really the Old Testament, the number of the first commandment, which is there are no other gods before me, right? You've all heard it that way. No other gods before me. There's, I wouldn't even say better, but another way to say that is there is no other God beside me. In other words, there's nothing else that you raise to the level of me. You don't bring any other thing here because then you will either try to smash us together and have this weird allegiance struggle in your life. Monday you'll go to this one, Tuesday you'll go to this one. Anybody know that feeling? Right? Money on Monday. Politics on Tuesday. Jesus on Wednesday because dinner parties. Right? Thursday. Like, we, and we just have this, we have this kind of back and forth struggle, wrestle all the time because ultimately what is happening is our revelation and confession are being hijacked by other confessions and other revelations. And we conflate these things and bring them together. And what Jesus says is, "I will build my church on one thing and one thing only. The church is or is not based on one thing. Do you confess Jesus is Lord? That's it. It's not the tradition of men. It's not the morality. It's not. All. It is that Jesus is Lord. Everything else builds off of that. And so, what are these guys? dealing with all the gods surrounding them. They're in this like irreligious type of scenario. They don't, they're not like, or hyper-religious, however you want to look at it. And what we're struggling with today, quite frankly, is an allegiance issue. Ultimately, what we're having happen, even within the church, is we are placing other gods beside Jesus and saying, well, on Monday when I'm arguing with my friend, it's this God. And then Tuesday when I need to forgive them, it's Jesus. And if we would just put Jesus, it would just work out so much better. That doesn't mean that it's not a counter-narrative. That doesn't mean that people won't push back on the idea. That doesn't mean that it won't, it won't ruffle some feathers because we're saying, that no, science isn't God and money isn't God and politics aren't God. and Instagram, my gosh, is not God. Like your viral video on TikTok, that don't make you God either. You don't now get to tell me all the things you think just because you had a good video. anyways. and so, like, here we go. Jesus is Lord, which keeps us in a couple of different postures. Humility, because I will never take the place of him. He is always going to be the cornerstone. That never changes. But it also gives me confidence, because I will never be the cornerstone. It's always just him. I'm not a good cornerstone. I will shift and move with the best of them. I, I won't stay put. I will. I will. I, and there's a there's a connection here with this Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who doesn't get mentioned, but he's in the etcetera that the disciples gave. Right? He's in the he's Isaiah's in the etcetera. Here's another great prophet of old. Isaiah 28 verse 16. And I don't remember if I, I guys I changed my message like 18 times yesterday, so I don't even know if I gave it. Did I give you Isaiah? Look at that. I'm more prepared than I think. All right. Therefore, the Lord God said. Now, there's, there, this, this is like eight chapters of um, correction being given to the people of Israel. God is a, a God of discipline and, uh, and, and, and correction. It's the rod and the staff. Comfort and correction. And we all hear that word correction, and we think it's a bad word. Uh, but the reality is that we all need it. It's why you have, like, the warning lights on your mirrors now in your car, because we all need correction or we're going to hurt somebody. Therefore the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, right stone, foundation rock. I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, tried and true. I did a series on that a few weeks or a few months ago. A precious cornerstone. There's value here. A sure what? Foundation, a sure foundation. It will not move. The one who believes will be unshakable. The one who believes will be unshakable. But I want to throw something at you because I love the variety of translations we have today. Some people like swear by one translation over the other, and I understand some of that. Uh, but the reality is, is that there's a lot of really smart people who are translating the Bible, and they all have a, the, the right desire about them. And I think... Uh, Looking at multiple gives you a better shape to it. That doesn't mean there isn't one that's maybe a little more correct, but there's a better view, a well-rounded view of this. It's like going to a thesaurus and looking up all the synonyms of a word, and you go, oh, okay, that makes more sense now. I want to just read a few other translations of this verse. The one who believes will be unshakable. Here you go. You ready? This now is what the sovereign Lord says. I am placing in Zion a foundation that is firm and strong in it i am putting a solid cornerstone upon which are written the words i love this upon which are written the words i should have read this one last faith that is firm is also patient oh i love that i might get my first tattoo faith faith that is firm right no i'm just joking okay faith that is firm faith that is firm is also patient. Patient. Okay, so when we see when we hear the word unshakable, we think, we think strong, we think it's not gonna move, it's, it's, not, gonna, it's not gonna wobble on us. Uh, it's 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 gonna give us a firm foundation. And that's that's true, but but there's multiple translations that translate it similar to this. So here's another one: He who trusts will not rush here and there. He who trusts in the Lord will not rush back and forth here and there anybody like tried to get out of the house really fast and all of a sudden it makes it take longer you can't pick up your keys the right way you drop them 14 times you forget the thing you needed because you're in a hurry you get angry real quick like everybody's in your way everybody's in your way even though they're just walking you know i'm not looking at my wife like all kinds of things happen when you get in a hurry Most of our frustration comes out of our hurry. Our hurry with God's plan. Could you, let's go. I just, and we get angry with the way things are working out because it's not happening in our timetable, our, our frustration with people because they haven't become the perfect person we expected them to be. Right? And I understand there's a healthy, like, desire to grow for sure um i watched jimmy johnson's hall of fame induction last night let's go cliff harris and jimmy let's go jj um oh y'all ain't excited about that i thought it was cool uh, but he talks about it no, anyways so the, uh if this is your first time hearing me preach this is normal and so so he said man we get we get in a hurry and we start we start Getting out of sorts, and we aren't able to do things in a healthy way. We get all kind of back. And we get frustrated, fearful, worrisome, anxious. This is another one. Amplified translation: He who believes, who trusts in, relies on, and adheres to the stone will not be disturbed or give way in sudden panic. He is another one. He who believes need never run away again. Oh, come on. I want to hear me. Some of you are going back to the same thing tomorrow. I want you to hear something. He who believes need never run away again. You do not need to take off in fear or worry because you are standing on the rock, the firm foundation of Christ Jesus. And he is unshakable, he's precious and valuable. He's tried and he's true. He has withstood the test of time, and he is a sure foundation. And upon him in the holy city of Zion, there I have placed this stone so that no man could And here's the thing that we got to understand both about Matthew 16 and Isaiah. Both of them trust that the Lord is doing it. I have placed the stone you can't carry, and it will never be moved. I will build my church as long as you continue to believe and the church will not be shaken. The church will not be moved. You will not run away. You will not let go in sudden panic. You will not get hurried here and there. We are the church built upon a firm foundation upon this rock. He will build it. doesn't mean we don't have work to do. He's not trying to let go of Partnership has been in the Bible from day one. It's Genesis 2. The water hadn't come, and there wasn't a person to work the, the, the plants. It, God sends the water, and people bring the cultivation. But together, God works the earth into the shape he called it to be. It's always been the plan. Jesus called disciples instead of just doing it all himself. Jesus God has always had the desire to see us do this thing together. Okay, so we got to hit a few other things. One of my favorite authors, and actually he stole the phrase, uh, says that we should be a non-anxious presence in the world. There's a book called Failure of Nerve. I have yet to read it, but some of my favorite preachers and teachers reference it all the time, so maybe I should, or just count on the fact that they're telling me the truth. Um, And it talks about these ideas that, 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 that... People who are successful who beat this kind of thing is, are those who have become this non-anxious presence in the world. People who uh, somehow have established something where, where they can walk into situations and circumstances and it doesn't shake them. It doesn't, it doesn't move them. It doesn't cause them. You know, have you ever walked into a room and everybody else is running like crazy and there's like one or two people who just seem to like be good? And those are always the people you want to go talk to and ask for help? Because everybody else is just going nuts. And you're like, I don't, I don't know. But the person just standing over at the side, crossing their arms, going, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, you've, you've seen this before. You've dealt with this before. You've, you've, you've handled that. There's something about the church that should be kind of standing on the side, not, not in an abdication or responsibility type way, but just simply in this quiet, hopeful, confident expectation that God is and will be. That he's good, and he's great. That Jesus is a cornerstone. The apostles built on it. Now you and I get to build on it, all coming together to be a dwelling place for the Lord. And I don't have to run around here and there. And every time something hits, I don't need to panic. And every time something goes crazy, I don't have to, I don't have to run away again. No, no, I'm built on Jesus. I'm built on Jesus. The church is built on on Jesus. Let's hit a few other verses. First Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read a couple a couple verses to you on this one. Verses 1 through 10. I'm just, I'm going to try to go fairly quickly because here's what happens, right? Paul, who's passed after the disciples, but has a revelation of Christ, has a pretty radical revelation of Christ. Uh, he goes from being one who persecuted the church uh, to one who becomes one of the greatest proponents of the church and building the church and planting the church and going into all these different places. And so, Paul has this kind of mission in his life, and it it becomes clear as you read multiple letters of his. Of course, there's a lot. It's not just one thing. But ultimately, what you find Paul doing on a regular basis is bringing people back to the centrality of Jesus Christ, bringing people back to the sufficiency of Jesus. In fact, in Colossians, we did a whole series one time where we we talked about the supremacy and uh, sufficiency of Jesus, that you could read Colossians, and that's really the goal. The goal of Colossians is to write to the people of Colossians and say, hey, he is sufficient for everything, and he is supreme over everything. And so Paul kind of has this thread woven through all of his letters, and you find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's just read a few verses here. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people. He's kind of, this is kind of that correction thing. Paul wasn't afraid of that. But as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready. My gosh, it's like I want to fold this letter back up, put it in the envelope, send it back, return to sender wrong people. Because you are still fleshly. And how does he define that? How does he make that distinction? He says, you're still fleshly because since there's envy, strife among you, you are not are you not fleshly and living just like unbelievers? Come on, Twitter. Are, Are we living just like unbelievers? Always picking the thing we disagree on? Always picking the thing we're envious about? Always picking the thing we're upset about? Are we not acting just like those who don't have a firm foundation? For whenever someone says, I am with Paul, and another, I am with Apollos, are you not unspiritual people? In other words, are you not basing this on the wrong thing? You're looking at Paul as a savior, Apollos as a savior. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave The growth, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Quit worrying about the dude down the street. Do what God's put in front of you. For we are God's co-workers. He's the person we're working with. He's the one in the cubicle next to us. He's the one we're going to staff meeting with. He, I'm working in relationship to him. I, I'm doing this because God is good. I, I'm not doing this because dude down the street is making it. No, I'm his. I'm with. I'm in it with him, and that should actually mean I work better with others. You're God's field, God's building, according to God's grace that was given to me. I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. That's all right, Paul. Yeah pretty confident. A skilled master builder, and another builds on it. Listen, but each one must be careful how he builds on it. He does talk about this later. He talks about whether you're building with good things or not, but verse 11 says, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus. That foundation is Jesus. What if there's a connection between The stone of Isaiah 28, 16, and when you believe in it, you will not hurry, you will not rush, and and the understanding or the revelation of maturity, right? What is he addressing in 1 Corinthians 3? I could not give you what you needed because you were not yet mature enough to handle it. You, You weren't ready to eat that. In fact, if I gave it to you, you would choke on it. It wouldn't be good for you. It would actually be bad for you. If I, if I gave you all of this now, that, man, you wouldn't actually, it would hurt you. And Paul's not trying to beat him up. He's trying to, hey, listen, you've got to keep growing and keep moving you've got to keep moving into what god has called you to because there is something to build and there is something to do and you are god's co-workers and you are his building and you you are the gardener and you are the ones who are going to water and you're going to sow the seed you are that I, he's going to make it grow but you are absolutely part of this and there is no other foundation to build on than the one that we've already laid and that foundation is jesus Maturity in Christ ultimately comes back down to the foundation of Jesus in your life. Are you one who stays, even in difficult moments, even in tough seasons, stays your feet, plants your feet along the riverbank, and without fail bears fruit of Psalm 1? Are you the type of person that plants your feet in Christ and even in challenging things? And I'm not saying we're perfect and I'm not saying you won't ever falter. I'm simply saying that can we come back to Jesus and dig in and begin to grow from the foundation of Christ? Because the the reality is that the foundation always dictates the form. Always dictates the form. You you lay a foundation of 1,700 square feet and try to build a building of 4,000 square feet, guess what? You wasted your time. We spend all of our time trying to build houses and way, way too little time establishing our foundation. The foundation will always dictate the form. Always. And so here's this, this moment where he's speaking to maturity. Again, he's trying to connect the dots that maybe the immaturity of our lives is connected to the foundation of our lives, the, 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 the hurry here and there, the running away again. My, my five-year-old has still not learned how to just kind of be patient. He still doesn't I cannot believe it because I'm patient all the time. Like, he just hasn't grown up yet. I wasn't patient when I watched a movie this past Thursday night. It was two and a half hours long. It should have been 20 minutes. I should have just watched the trailer. You can ask me later if it was so bad. So bad. And uh, I'm still not over it. And I hurried here and there. I couldn't stop thinking about other things because it was so bad. And my, my five-year-old will come up, and, oh, my gosh, it drives me crazy because I'm mature. Um, he'll come up, and he'll go, Dad, come here. And I'll go, hold on. Dad, come here. Hold on. Dad, come here. Now. Now. Mm-hmm. Hold on. And my, my, my five-year-old is so, like, he's stubborn, little OCD, like, won't stop. And he will just keep asking, just keep asking. And I know I'm supposed to pay attention to my kids, and I do. But then you'll go with him to wherever he's trying to go, and he'll be like, there is no reason whatsoever for me to be here right now, like, in the immediate. Like, I could have come over in three and a half minutes, and you would have been Fine. But immaturity doesn't know that things are going to be okay. Immaturity doesn't always know that we can't predict the future and we need to stop worrying about it. Don't worry about tomorrow. It doesn't mean you can't plan it, but don't worry about it. Live present right now. Don't hurry here and there. And Paul is trying to get these guys to grow. Okay, so let's go to another one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Again, same author. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. This I definitely didn't give to them. So, uh, I apologize. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. And we're going to wrap up in just a moment. It says this, until we all each reach, sorry, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will... Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind or teaching by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Come on. But speaking in truth and love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted together, knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. What an amazing verse. Let us all firmly establish ourselves. It sounds like Paul is trying to get at something with the body of Christ. Like, what is the ultimate aim of Jesus? What is he really trying to do with the church? Paul, speaking to this idea, says, let us be people not like little children, not like those who are tossed to and fro by every new doctrine, by every deceitful word, not by human wisdom, but let us build our life into Jesus so that each of us begins to realize who we are called to be and what we are called to do, and in that, we would love each other well, in that, we would reach a unity that causes blessing and grace and strength and hope. Let us be people. My maturity is not measured by the fact that everybody does exactly what I do. My maturity is is often measured by the fact that even in the midst of people doing things a little different than I would do them, we still love each other well. The measurement of the kingdom is always love, always self-sacrificial love. The pattern Jesus gave the disciples was getting down on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples and saying, this is the pattern I set for you. Because when you walk this earth from house to house, from place to place, from point A to point B, you're going to get some mess on your feet and on your life. And what should the church be? The church, founded on the grace, the truth, the freedom, the hope, the fullness of Jesus, should be on our knees washing the feet of people, rather than pointing out the dirt. Because we all walk in the same dirt. We all walk. I, I'm blown away by the fact that we have people picking sides based upon how bad the other side is and saying, "Well, it's all because of this and all because of this," and rather than just saying, because we're all human and we do stupid stuff. Like we're all a little bit wrong and we're all a little bit right. And the more often we'd say that, the better often, the better off we would be. Because at the end of the day, my freedom is not based upon whether I'm right or wrong. It's based on the simple fact that there's this tried and true, precious, proven, sure foundation that no matter what comes, no matter what storm shows up, my foundation is Christ and it will not move. Okay, I got one more for you. I got one more. I don't want to I don't want to forget. I got one more. I got one more. Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. And again, I don't know if I gave you guys this. I, I apologize for switching it all up. It's just such a big verse. It's just such like a it's a massive verse. That I, you know, so much to cover. Colossians chapter one. I'm just gonna read verse um, I think we'll just read verse 28. There's a lot here, and you. I think you should go read it. In fact, if, if you really want to read it, go follow it into Colossians 2. Don't end with the last verse of Colossians 1. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that, this is still Paul talking to a different group of people, all founded upon Jesus as the Son of the living God, as the Messiah, right? Everything is built on this. That's what they've been preaching, okay? We proclaim him wisdom so that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ Jesus. So that we may present you mature in Christ Jesus. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Let's jump into Colossians 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. For those in Laodicea and for those and for all who have not seen me in person, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches. Of assured understanding, have the knowledge of God's mystery, who is Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Oh, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. For I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Jesus, walk in him. Quit adding all these other things to him. Walk in Christ rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Be careful. Be vigilant. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, based, based, based on the foundation and not based on Christ. For the entire, listen to this, I love that we, made, we have made Jesus human over the last couple decades. We, we've made him more real to people. We've made him more like you can touch and feel, you can see Jesus living the way we lived and going to eat and, and making a living and going into all the places, going for a swim in the Sea of Galilee, you know, calming some waves. and Like, I love that we've made him that, but don't ever forget. Don't ever forget what Paul's about to tell you. Don't ever forget what Paul is about to tell you, to tell you and I. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. For the entire nature, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily. If one author says, "If we see the face of Jesus, we see God." Everything's there, and then oh then Paul takes it a little bit further. and you have been filled. By him who is the head over every ruler and every authority. Kind of sounds like when Jesus looks at Peter and says, and what you bind on earth, and what you loose on earth. Yeah, we can run rampant with that. We get a little wild with that phrase. The reality is what you forgive is forgiven. It's interesting that when, um, when the four men carrying the man on the mat lower him down in the house, he looks, Jesus looks at the people And says, because of your faith, he is made whole. Jesus has always been about you and I doing this thing together. Are you Jesus? No. But Jesus dwells in you. And in, in him is the fullness of the nature of God. And he is the foundation of all which we do. I was reading it this week, and one author says, It is important to realize that according to the passage in Ephesians, the supreme purpose of the church is not the evangelization of the world. The Great Commission is often held up to us as the supreme aim and purpose of the church, and is certainly crucial and essential. But Jesus has clearly sent us out to preach the gospel to every creature. That's that's a given. But the Great Commission is not God's supreme ultimate goal. Romans 8.29 tells us that God's ultimate plan for us is that we be conformed into the image of his son. God's overarching goal is to produce men and women who demonstrate the character qualities of Jesus. God does not want a church filled with white-robed saints. He does not want a church filled with theological authorities and cultural clergymen. He wants a church filled with ordinary men and women who exemplify the extraordinary integrity, temperament, wholeness, compassion, boldness, righteousness, earnestness, love, forgiveness, selflessness, and faithfulness of Jesus. In other words, what God's desire is that the church would look like Jesus. Because it is built upon Jesus. And like the author of Hebrews says beholds Jesus. Church, that's what we are. We have become the dwelling place of God by becoming stones built upon the cornerstone of Christ. You need not ever run away again. You do not need to hurry here and there to try to build something that God has said he would build. When Jesus says I'll build my church, he's not talking about cathedrals. He loves cathedrals. They're beautiful. If you've walked into some big time cathedral, they're amazing. You look up and the whole point is that you'd go, "Wow, God's big." Like they're great. When Jesus says I'll build my church, he's talking about putting saint with saint person with person, extraordinary and ordinary, natural and supernatural, smashing them together and go, this is my body. This is my church. This, as they grow together without envy, without jealousy, without argument, without division, but with unity and love and grace and peace, because they know who actually holds it all together. The only reason we're getting so divided politically is because we think one party is going to hold it together better than the other party. And let me just be really frank with you that is misguided. Just look around the room at some people who've lived through the sexual revolution, who've lived through the Vietnam War, who've lived through some of the pains of the 60s and 70s, who've lived through actual segregation, who've lived through all these things, and realize that we are a people who are imperfect all the time. And our only hope of bringing unity is finding a better foundation and living in a different story. It is not trying to go in and edit an and and a the and a but and a comma and an exclamation point in, in the story of the world. It is to go, hey, we've got a completely different one. And the kingdom, oh, the kingdom looks like you and, you and you and you and you and you and you can wear you can wear plaid and you can wear all black. You can come from the inner city and you come from the suburbs. You can like coffee or like tea. Ugh. You you can do all kinds of things, and the kingdom is built not on what you are outwardly, but on the simple fact that on the inside of me I have a revelation of Jesus, and I have a confession of Christ, and that brings the church together. The most beautiful mosaic on the planet should be the church. So what's the goal here when we gather together? I think I finished it all. I don't really know. We'll come back. We got another one next week, so it's all good. Taking a little extra time. Worship teams itching to get back up here because they were on it today. But I guess it comes back to this question, and it will keep coming back to this question Who do you say Jesus is? Like, really? Really? Who do you say Jesus is? Because there's a lot of ideas out there. There's a lot of a lot of ideologies, there's a lot of humanistic tradition, there's a lot, of, a lot of different ways to look at this, a lot of different things to bring to the table, and, and, and we've just seen in history that there's just, there's never been one that cures all ills. The greatest challenge of our culture is trying to build a utopia without a creator. That's what's happening. Why don't you bow your heads? Lord, I thank you so much. God, I thank you that you are Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You have made a way. You are making a way. You have done a new thing in each and every single one of us. And, Lord, what we have struggled with so often is our confession. Some of us, it's our revelation. But, Lord, like Peter, let us all become those who can say confidence, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let us be a church that rises and falls with that belief at the center of who we are. God, I pray that today, those who felt like running would stay. Those who have been in a hurry would slow down. Those who let go of some things in a panic would have peace. God, those who have have been shaken, we've become unshakable. Because we believe in the rock, the foundation that is Jesus Christ. But I pray that people would be blessed this week. I pray that the rock of Christ would never move. And I pray that the foundation of Jesus would become more and more and more in our lives that we would set our feet, plant our feet, and be rooted in you and grow and grow and grow so that we might have love for one another, grace towards one another. And I pray those of us in this room today who would say, you know what? I need to step back onto the rock. I need to build again on the firm foundation of Christ. Lord, I pray that they would simply say it, simply confess it. God, you are. You are Messiah. You are the son of the living God, and God, you would call them blessed. You would call them blessed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.